The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello. It is a single word in a single poem, and I've been thinking about it for six months. We will have that poem by the wonderful poet Robert Hayden, along with a glimpse from the Penguin Book of the Undead with our guest, Scott G. Bruce, today on The History of Literature. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Happy New Year. We are all doing our best, aren't we? I hope your new year is off to a good start. We have a lot of big plans this year. Hopefully, we'll keep up our two episodes a week schedule for a while. We'd like to grow the show if we can. Thanks to all of you for all your support and for sharing us with your friends and fellow lovers of literature. We have so many books and so many authors to cover. I'm not sure how else we can really do justice to this subject unless we can do two episodes a week, which your help is in that regard is much appreciated. So speaking of which, covering a lot of authors and a lot of topics, let's jump right in. Thank you. By the way, to all the listeners who have written to wish me happy holidays and happy new year, I do appreciate it, even if my return correspondence has fallen woefully behind. Once again, I went through a few weeks of family crisis, and your emails were much appreciated during that time. I do thank you for all of the kindness. Okay, now let's jump in. So, Robert Hayden was born in 1913 in an area of Detroit that went by a couple of names. It was called Black Bottom, was also more optimistically called Paradise Valley. It was a poor area, the only place that blacks were allowed to live when Robert Hayden was born, and they were outgrowing that territory. In the 1920s, black folks coming north looking for work found it in the booming factories of Detroit's auto industry. They also encountered extreme prejudice, as white factory workers resented their black co-workers, especially if there were promotions involved. And white bigots treated housing encroachments on their neighborhoods with burning crosses and, in 1943, a race riot. And so Black Bottom, or Paradise Valley, in the 1920s, as 40,000 black residents swelled to 120,000, was living up to both of its names. On the one hand, was a kind of paradise of entertainment, crackling with jabs, jabs, jazz clubs and bars and restaurants and bowling alleys and miniature golf courses. Something like 300 black-owned businesses were packed into this these city blocks. On the other hand, the housing was poor and decrepit, neglected by the government, run down, broken, and no way to expand. The borders were fierce. And in this area, this locale of extremes, black ownership in the confines of strict borders, the seams, 
of the neighborhood stretching until it seemed they would burst, lived a young boy with an unhappy home life who moved to a foster home and eyesight so impaired he couldn't play sports outside. Instead, he sat inside with thick glasses and thick books, and he resolved to become a poet. He eventually wound up doing just that, first becoming recognized as one of the, one of the great Afro-American poets of his day, using the label that was used at the time, and finally, by the 1970s and 80s, being recognized as one of the great American poets, period. Robert Hayden won a number of awards. He taught at the University of Michigan and other places. He was honored by the Library of Congress and several other august institutions. He always wanted to be considered an American poet, not an African-American poet or a black American poet. And so he was considered that, and we'll do that today. Although his efforts to cast himself outside a black tradition at times earned him disapproval from fellow black writers, especially during the contentious civil rights and black power eras. At the same time, Robert Hayden, even as he resisted labels, he didn't write race out of his work. He was, if anything, intensely interested in the black experience, the history of black people in America, the power and the powerlessness, the plunder and the plight, the awesome hopes and awful history. He was also a wonderfully facile poet, a craftsman who could draw upon different voices with a range and sweep as powerful and as sparkling with energy as T.S. Eliot's Modernist Standards, The Wasteland, and The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. Hayden had a mastery of formal verse, as well as a willingness to bend rules, bring in that modernist spirit. Strict, but not straight-jacketed, one critic said. Robert Hayden died in 1980 at the age of 66, leaving behind a legacy of teaching and some indelible poems, including The Ballad of Nat Turner, Those Winter Sundays, which we discussed in a previous episode, the one on dad poetry, and his magnum opus, Middle Passage, and the poem we will, we will be talking about today, the sonnet Frederick Douglass. But first, let's take a quick break, and then we're going to hear from Scott Bruce, who was here uh, last time as well. I think it was last time to talk about hell. This time, he's going to give us a preview of literary zombies. What a way to start the year with the undead. Professor Bruce is an expert in zombies of the Literary, literary variety, how they have been portrayed throughout the centuries. And all this is building up to his visit to us coming up soon, where we will talk all about dragons, which is his latest book that he's edited. Okay, so, zombies. And then, Robert Hayden and the poem Frederick Douglass. After this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. 
Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. All the boys in the neighborhood, they say your black bottom is really good. I want to show me your black bottom. Okay, joining me now for the second time is Professor Scott Bruce of Fordham University. He's the editor of three books, The Penguin Book of the Undead, The Penguin Book of Hell, and The Penguin Book of Dragons. We're going to have a full conversation with him on The Penguin Book of Dragons, and he's been here before to give us kind of a an alarming passage about hell that gave us a, a taste of that book, if we want to uh, scare the bejesus out of ourselves. And hopefully, well, we'll see, I guess, we, <laughs> now we turn to the undead. Uh, Professor Bruce, thanks again for joining me on the History of Literature. Oh, well, thank you for having me. Okay, so... Is there a particular passage or story from the Penguin Book of the Undead that you could share with us to give listeners a taste of what they might find there? Uh, yes, indeed. This is a story, again, from the 12th century by an author named William of Newburgh, who was writing about the history of England. Um, but he included some stories from his own time that he had heard, and one of them involved a priest who didn't act like a priest. Um, mm. He had far too much interest in worldly affairs, and he particularly loved to hunt. And because he was surrounded by his hunting dogs all the time, people gave him the name Hundeprest, that is the hound priest. Mm. And so when he died, he was cursed by God to rise up from his grave, not as a ghost, but as a living zombie. And he would shamble around the town, terrifying people. And so some local monks decided that they had to do something about this, and they go to his grave at night in order to solve the problem of this restless corpse. Mm. So the monk returned to the abbey and joined forces with another monk of the same age and temperament and two strong young men with whom they kept watch over the cemetery where that wretched priest lay buried. These four men, furnished with weapons and bravery, spent the night in that place, safe in the support that they provided for one another. Midnight had just passed and no sign of the monster had appeared. And then it happened that three of them, leaving alone in that place the one who had brought them all together, went into a nearby house to ward off the chill of the night with a fire. Then, when this monk found himself alone in that place, the devil, believing that he'd found the right moment to break the monk's courage, roused his vessel. Seeing the monster from a distance, at first the monk grew stiff with fear, for he was alone, but soon he recovered his courage. And when it was clear that there was no place to run, he valiantly intercepted the onslaught of the whore, which rushed toward him with a terrible roar and he buried the battle axe he was wielding deep into its body. When it received this wound, the monster let out a cry, and turning its back, fled away, though not quite as quickly as it had advanced. 
The amazing monk harried the fleeing foe from behind and forced it back into its own tomb, which gaped open for, for the monster on its own accord. Once it had snatched its guest from the sight of its pursuer, the tomb appeared to close right away with the same ease. When these events were taking place, the companions who had sought relief from the night's chill near the fire left the house and ran late to the scene. When they heard what had happened, at dawn they assisted in digging up that cursed corpse and dragging it away from the tomb. Once they'd cleansed the monster of the dirt that came out with it, they found on its body the great wound that it had received, and in the tomb a large amount of gore which had flowed from it. And so they carried the corpse beyond the walls of the abbey for burning and scattered the ashes. Mm. Wow. Okay. <laughs> there we go. Well, Professor Bruce, we will look forward to our talk with you on dragons coming up. Thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you so much. So a friend of mine has spent years working on automobile safety issues, both for the government and in the private sector. For a long time, he worked on electric vehicles being too quiet. That's a potential downside, those things just whizzing along when the elderly and the visually impaired and all of us, really, all of us pedestrians are accustomed to hearing cars coming from farther away, noisier cars combustion engines. The question was, should there be something added to electric cars to give people more of a warning so they don't step off the curb at the wrong time? It was a, a fascinating job he had. He'd be out in the field in the middle of nowhere, just him and a colleague and a trailer, because they had to have silence as they were running tests on these cars. Now he's moved into a different area, cars that drive themselves hands-free driving. You've probably seen the ads for these or read the articles. You can sit at the wheel and the car will drive itself. Parallel parking, for one thing, but also on the highway while you're relaxing. The car does the steering and lane changing and all that for you. And maybe you've read some of the horror stories of tests run where this has gone wrong. And maybe you've given some thought to what this means for us and our world some futuristic glimpses. Maybe you love the idea, or maybe you think it's a recipe for disaster. A utopian-minded person might say, well, imagine we could link up all the cars on the highway, all of them perfectly in tune with one another, traveling at some efficient speed together, drafting off one another, perhaps, with computers putting them just the right distance apart that they can travel safely together, and we can reduce traffic congestion and be efficient in our journeys, and so on. A cynic might say, these cars are going to slam on their brakes unnecessarily, and the computers will fail, or the cars will drive too slow or too fast, and I don't like the idea. Something will go wrong. And some might say, we will have robot, robot Ubers and Amazon deliveries. How wonderful. And others might say, we'll have robot Ubers and Amazon deliveries. How horrendous. And my friend asked me what I thought, just as a layperson. 
because this is his world. He's immersed in it. He's in this all day long, working with the regulations and the manufacturers and the government to come up with solutions. And I thought about it for a moment, and then I said, well, I think I'm probably a better driver than the computer. I'll have a hard time trusting the computer to be as safe as I am when I'm driving. On the other hand, I trust the computers more than I trust my fellow drivers. They're all drunk or distracted or just not very good at driving. So I want to be making all my decisions, but I don't mind if other cars, if the drivers in other cars aren't. And my friend chuckled and said, you are not alone. That's a very common attitude to take toward these self-driving cars. So hold that thought or that anecdote for a moment because we're going to be coming back to it. Robert Hayden is of that school from the mid-century, roughly contemporaneous with Auden, with Langston Hughes and Yeats and T.S. Eliot as their predecessors. It's an era where modernism has made different voices possible, but there's also a hearkening back to formal verse. Hayden's great poem, Middle Passage, about the transatlantic slave trade and the Amistad uprising, was influenced by Eliot's The Wasteland, and by a poet we don't often read today, Stephen Vincent Benet, who was a hugely popular poet in America in his time, which was also the time when Hayden was first getting started as a poet. Benet was much more widely read than Eliot or others we now think of as 20th century classics like Robert Frost and Wallace Stevens and William Carlos Williams. He wrote, Benet wrote a huge epic poem called John Brown's Body about the Civil War. It was popular in the North and the South. Hayden was responding to that poem and to The Wasteland when he wrote his most famous works. In addition, in addition to those influences we've already mentioned, Gates and Auden and Langston Hughes and so on. He was also influenced by County Cullen, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, and some other Harlem Renaissance poets, and the Romantics, especially John Keats. As a teenager, he was exposed to Carl Sandburg and Edna St. Vincent Millay, and although, like most mature poets of his age and era, he outgrew those two, I would say. But the commitment to form and formalism that you see in those poets is still part of his poetic DNA. So let me read to you one of his works. I'm tempted to read Those Winter Sundays, which I absolutely love, the poem about a father warming the house, a house that the poet is nostalgic for and giving a kind of belated, grudging respect for that house and for the man of the house, the father, while also noting that he feared the chronic angers of that house, that's the phrase, chronic angers, and ending with those beautifully and hauntingly majestic lines, what did I know, what did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? Mm, such a good poem. It's heavily anthologized, and deservedly so. I won't read that poem. We did an episode where we talked about that poem. A lot of what I love about that poem, which was originally a sonnet, actually, in its first draft, it's found in the poem we're going to be talking about today, his sonnet called Frederick Douglass. The same care and attention to detail, the formality of the poem, but the surprising departures too. Straight, strict, but not straight-jacketed, I guess is the phrase we'll use again. And the single word in this poem that has kept me thinking for six months 
See if you can catch it when you listen to the poem. Let's listen to Robert Hayden deliver his poem. Said I was going to read it. Let's let's let Robert Hayden himself read it for us. This is him delivering his poem, Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass was a very great man, a 19th century figure who was a voice for the Negro and who was a great and powerful human voice, too. He was concerned with the freedom of women. He was concerned with uh, all the progressive movements of his time. Was, uh, he, was, he was truly a very great American. And uh, in this poem, I try to pay homage to him. Frederick Douglass. When it is finally ours, this freedom, this liberty, this beautiful and terrible thing, needful to man as air, usable as earth, when it belongs at last to all, when it is truly instinct, brain matter, diastole, systole, reflex action, when it is finally won, when it is more than the gaudy mumbo-jumbo of politicians, this man, this Douglas, this former slave, this Negro beaten to his knees, exiled, visioning a world where none is lonely, none hunted, alien, this man, superb in love and logic, this man shall be remembered. Oh, not with statues rhetoric, not with legends and poems and wreaths of bronze alone, but with the lives grown out of his life, the lives fleshing his dream of the beautiful, needful thing. Hmm. Okay, did you catch the word? The word that has kept me thinking is terrible. Frederick Douglass. So we know what world we're in. When we see the title of the poem, Frederick Douglass, the world of a slave who found his freedom and then fought for the freedom of all of his fellow slaves. And this is from written in the 1960s, a hundred years after the Emancipation Proclamation, as the country has lived through the aftermath of that, the freeing of the slaves, where lived through the Reconstruction Era South, the advent of the KKK, the Jim Crow era and is now in the height of the civil rights movement looking back. A hundred years since the Emancipation Proclamation and the following constitutional amendments and so on that granted slaves our freedom, or outlawed slavery, we could say, in the States. A hundred years of promise, a hundred years of unfulfilled promise. Freedom, but not full freedom. Not economic freedom, not educational freedom, not... Freedom to participate fully in society. Black people at the back of the bus, not allowed in diners, not allowed in restaurants throughout the South. 100 years of that, including 50 or so of those years of Robert Hayden's life, the part of that history that he himself witnessed and endured. Freedom, liberty, it's been like a beacon It's so revered in American society and the American myth and what we tell ourselves about America. The country was founded on casting aside a king and choosing self-representation, but also at the same time, of course, the awareness that this freedom was not being applied to everyone. That's the backdrop of the poem. We know it from the title and the author alone, and the first lines are, When it is finally ours... This freedom, this liberty, this beautiful and terrible thing. Let's note the, the 
usage here of this, this, this. It's a Shakespearean trick. It's very effective. Hayden uses it twice in this poem. This freedom, this liberty, this beautiful and terrible thing. And he uses it again with this man, this Douglas, this former slave, this Negro. It's a great word, this. If you've ever learned a foreign language, you know its power. The power of being able to point to something and say, this one, this one, and this, and this. I did it in Italian, in Bologna, and again in... uh, when I lived in Taiwan, I did it in Chinese. It was wonderful to learn that word. It was the difference between eating whatever the restaurant served me out of pity, like a dog being thrown scraps, and being someone who could point to what he wanted at a buffet or a lunch counter. This and this and this. And Shakespeare had it in Richard II as the famous part, I'll skip to the end, this blessed plot this earth, this realm, this England. Something great about lists and the way you use this is a way of focusing the reader's attention and the speaker's attention. It focuses the reader on what you're talking about. It isolates the thing, and then it names it and renames it and renames it. You can expand outward this blessed plot, this earth, this realm, this England. Hear how that expands out, but then you redefine it as well. That's what Hayden's doing here. This freedom, this liberty, this beautiful and terrible thing. I'm going to tell you three things, four things about this thing. Or this man, this Douglas, this former slave, this Negro. All these things about him. But I'm going to say it as if I'm describing them in four different ways. So your attention is focused and I can expand out and make it broader or I can zero in and make it narrower or I can redefine, I can juxtapose and I can do it in a way that makes you think, which is what he's done here. It's a wonderful poetic device. Here we are. Here's what I see. Here's what I select. I can state and restate and define and shade the meanings with this formulation. It's a poet's way of talking. Shakespeare, in that same paragraph, that same stretch of prose for Richard II with this blessed plot, this earth, this realm, this England, he has this royal throne of kings, this sceptered isle, this earth of majesty, this seat of Mars, this other Eden, demi-paradise, this fortress built by nature. It goes on and on and on. This happy breed of men, this little world, this precious stone set in the silver sea. Mm. Very poetic. Hayden uses the formulation to say this freedom, this liberty, this beautiful and terrible thing. Needful to man as air, usable as earth. And yet it isn't fully ours. It doesn't belong to all. It hasn't finally been finally won. It's still in the gaudy mumbo-jumbo of politicians. That's another gorgeous phrase. Ah, the gaudy mumbo-jumbo of politicians. That's grand and gutter combined. Just like those preening politicians with their $500 haircuts and $5,000 teeth and 50-cent rhetoric. Gaudy mumbo-jumbo. Empty words, lip service, no action, no substance behind it. 
We know what we want. We want freedom in America. And for black people in 1966, it was wanted desperately. It was time. It was past time. A hundred years after the Civil War, and it was still not their freedom for every person in every state, which meant it was not fully there for any person in any state. And yet, land of the free, etc. We know people fought in World War II for what? For freedom. And yet, it was not there. It's a beautiful thing. Yes. Agreed. Needful as air. Yes. Usable as earth. Hmm. Takes a moment for me to get my mind around that one. But yes, I get it. But then, terrible. Why do we have the word terrible here? Why not? It's not just filling space. We could fill that space with glorious. Why not glorious? This beautiful and glorious thing. Why not radiant Why not shimmering? All those words would work in the meter. But Robert Hayden chose terrible. So I presented this dilemma to my teenage son who said, well, he must have been a bad poet, someone who didn't know what he was talking about. And I said, well, what if I told you he was one of the most intelligent and careful poets of the 20th century, a master craftsman? And he said, well, he must have made a mistake. He probably meant to say terrific and autocorrect took over. (laughs) Okay, let's throw out the idea that this was a mistake or inadvertent. I'm I'm not of the school that every single word and every single work of art is carefully and deliberately chosen. Especially when you get into big novels, it's easy for a clunker to slip through. Mistakes happen. But this is a short poem, and Hayden chose every word of it carefully, clearly. So why the word terrible? It's not a bad phrase on its own, beautiful and terrible. Search for that phrase, beautiful and terrible thing. You'll be flooded with references to Dumbledore talking about truth as beautiful and terrible. You'll also find love described this way and marriage. And we know the sharp edge of all those things, the agony as well as the ecstasy. Beautiful and terrible, it makes sense. Right? For truth and love and marriage, truth sets us free. But it can be painful to hear or to learn. Love is all we need, but love also bites. As I learned at my high school homecoming, when my fellow classmates chose Love Bites as our homecoming theme song, marriage, that is Famously full of ups and downs, the good and the bad. But freedom? Liberty? Are those not purely good? Are they not just beautiful? Do they need terrible as a qualifier? Or is another aspect of them terrible? Hmm. If they're not purely good, in what ways aren't they? What makes them terrible? So, leaving aside my son's theory, which I don't think is viable, I think there are two possible explanations. I don't think Hayden himself ever talked about this. If he did, if he or anyone else has ever explained this fully, please do. And they have ideas that I don't convey here. Please let me know. I looked 
for that, but did not find it. Instead, I found a few ideas, but mainly I've been working this out on my own. A beautiful and terrible thing. Why would freedom and liberty be a terrible thing? One of the explanations I think is fairly obvious, but has a lot of different angles to it. So let's start with that one. This is the idea, I think it's kind of intuitive, that freedom can actually be too much for us, that it can be hard on a human in various ways. I've got five different topics here. Let's start with the first one, artistic freedom. I don't think this is the central one to the poem, but it might help us start to unpack these ideas. First of all, look at the choice Hayden himself makes for this poem, the sonnet. Famously, the sonnet has 14 lines. It can have 12 sometimes, or 13, or 15. But here, Hayden gives it 14. He follows that. The traditional sonnet. The structure. He's strict about it, but within that, he's not in a straitjacket. There's no rhyme scheme or metrical foot patterns that impose their burdens on him. He has made the choice not to let them just like he's made the choice to use 14 lines. Nothing he, nothing said he had to, but there's freedom in not having to decide. How many lines should this poem be? It could be anything I want. That's the artist facing the blank page. And to say, I'll make it 14, is a way of unburdening yourself. There's freedom in not having to choose from among infinite possibilities, which gets us at one of the things we're talking about here, I think. Freedom is an absolute good, a beautiful thing, but if it's given to us in an absolute form, it can be terrible. Ask an artist staring at a blank page if he or she wants to be completely free to write whatever he or she wants, and of course he or she will say, absolutely. That's the artist in us talking. Ask the craftsman the same question. You can do anything. You can write a poem that's four lines or four million lines. Or you could write it a novel or a short story or a poem or something else, some form you yourself have invented. Anything you want. Well, the craftsman might say, in order to get started, it's nice to have a few guidelines. If you want me to build something, I want to have a few things to think about. It's nice to have a house. If I'm building a house, it's nice to, to, to know that I have no restrictions, but I do kind of like the idea that I'll start with walls and a roof and a door. Got to have somewhere to begin. I've got to know what to center this around. Some way of choosing among infinite possibilities. The writing can be anything you want. If you're imagining art, you want to be free. If you're imagining artwork, you might benefit from having fewer choices. How big should this be? Well, how big is my canvas? The blank page can be a terrible thing, knowing you have one thing to cling to at least. Okay, 14 lines, that'll work. Or I think a a good detective novel would help me get this across. There's some structure built into that. Or the haiku form is one I'd like to adapt for this. It's not total freedom. You have some structure. But within those restrictions comes this unburdening I've been talking about. A kind of freedom, one might say. 
I'm freer because I have some structure. The point for us now is that it points us toward freedom as a terrible thing. Too many options, too many choices, too much chaos, too many possibilities, and no way of making sense of it all. It can be debilitating. Now, before we get too far down this path, let's note that that's not really a direct analogy to something like slavery because there's the freedom. The artist has made the freedom to choose the sonnet form. Freedom hasn't been completely taken away as it is with slavery. So I don't think Hayden is making that comparison with art. And when he gets to the end, where he's talking about freedom and liberty being a beautiful and terrible thing, he changes it. It's no longer a terrible thing. He drops that part out. He calls it a beautiful, needful thing. The artist and the craftsman needs to be free to use whatever form he or she wants. Clearly. But let's not also lose sight of the idea that maybe one of the reasons why freedom can be terrible or thought of as terrible is because too many choices can be a bad thing. So let's turn from art toward human beings in general. What do they do with freedom? How can it be a terrible thing for them to have freedom? And again, it's a little bit different, but it has to do with choices. You want to have choices until you don't. I read about a CEO who only has two types of clothing in his closet, khakis and a blue button-down shirt. He wears the same outfit every day. He thinks it's the perfect outfit, the best one, the right mix of casual and formal to suit all his needs. And he says, well, it's the color of a beach and the sky, which makes me happy. So he's got 20 pairs of khakis, all the same, and 20 shirts, all the same. He wears them. Over and over and over. And the real reason he said he's done this is because he was having a hard time choosing what to wear. Every morning, The same, he'd go through the same routine. What do I feel like wearing today? And he'd be thinking, I wish I could wear this outfit, but I wore that yesterday. Or I feel like wearing this one today, but what if I want to wear it tomorrow and it'll be in the laundry? What will I do then? Or what if I have these pants and this shirt and they don't match? And that's all I have left. What will I do then? And what he likes about his decision to only wear one outfit is he no longer has the freedom of choice. He's not free to wear whatever he wants. He only has one thing to wear. He's opted out of that freedom, but now he feels more free than ever because he no longer has to stand in front of his closet and think every day. He can move on with his life and do other things. Again, let's emphasize that this is different from being held against your will. He has opted into this set of restrictions, which is a different thing. But if we're examining freedom, wondering how it can ever be a terrible thing, we have to look at places where people have accepted these restrictions on their freedom, sought them out. What problem were they trying to solve? A Hayden, Robert Hayden, might look at the freer people, the white Americans all around him in 1966, and say, well, what have they done with their freedom? How beautiful has it been for them? They've enjoyed it, sure. They could make their own destiny with it. And yet, from my perspective, so many are filled with hate and anger. How free is it to live with that shame of putting a hood over your head if you're in the KKK? How free is it to go to church in the morning and then go to a lynching later that day, to pray to a god and then violate 
the teachings of that God sent by his messenger. Freedom is terrible if you're a flawed human being and you fall into horrible conduct and behavior. With freedom comes responsibility, comes moral agency, comes the potential for sin and blackened souls and the potential for guilt. Hayden was a religious man himself. He joined the Baha'i faith. Like most religions, it comes with some beautiful spiritual ideals as well as some restrictions, some order, some structure, some limits, some rules. There are things you can't do and things you should do, requirements and prohibitions. And again, there's a difference here between the freedom to opt in to a religion and and some kind of mass-imposed religion, let's say. But it's another example of freedom, total freedom, freedom outside of the church, outside of an established faith, outside of the rules and teachings of gods and prophets and priests and texts, just being alone in the universe without any guidance, without company, and without some hints about how to know God or love God or worship God or be among those who feel that way too. Let's say there's no heaven. Let's say there's no hell. Let's say there's no God. It's terrifying. It can be, right? Nietzsche, when he said God is dead, he said it was an abyss. That's the abyss. All the institutions that you've counted on, all of the beliefs, all of the understandings, what if they're gone? You don't say, well, I'm now standing on top of a, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting on top of a, a horse that's going to carry me into some glorious future. You say, I'm staring into an abyss. Some might say, well, it's not terrible for me. I, 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 I appreciate not having anything controlling what I think or suggesting what to think, and that's not terrible for me. But for a lot of people, it is. Where do you begin to feel at home with deep and abiding questions if you are on your own? Completely free, perhaps. But maybe that's more freedom than you want. You can see where this is headed. Politics is maybe the easiest one. People are tired of making choices, Mussolini used to say. They want us to make choices for them. Us, the state, us, the party, us, a strongman leader, or oligarchs, or generals. They say that people don't want to vote, or they want to vote, but they want to vote us in and then be done with it. They don't want decisions. They want to be told what to do. They want limits. They want order. It's not free, as it might appear to outsiders, but it's freedom in a sense. It's freedom from chaos, from choices. That's the, that's the extreme where politics can head. And I think we're getting at what Hayden is getting at here with his freedom and liberty as a thing, both beautiful and terrible. It has an awesome power. We all want freedom. We all deserve it as human beings. And yet, it's not uncomplicated, this thing, freedom. It's not just as simple a thing like saying we all want warm socks or we all want a scoop of ice cream. It's something essential to our being human, the extent of the freedom we possess and what we do with it and what it does to us. It can be overwhelming to us 
as individuals too, or to us as a society. Beautiful and terrible. By the way, beautiful and terrible, that combination isn't, uh, isn't new to Hayden. Hayden didn't invent it. It has a poetic pedigree, the sublime. Started in antiquity, and the romantics were all over the sublime. I suspect Hayden, in his poetic studies, absorbed that from them as well. When you contemplate something that produces strong emotions, strong feelings, a superabundance of feelings, an excess, there can be an awesome power, a terrible power, something that scares you or makes your skin tingle along with the beauty that you see. By calling freedom beautiful and terrible, Hayden is nodding not just to freedom as something good and and neat and nice and pleasant, but something powerful, something capable of inspiring awe, something potentially dangerous. It's a way of emphasizing just how important freedom is or how needful it is. He's not saying, don't give freedom to us. We don't want it. It's too scary to have. He's saying, don't deprive us of this. Don't tell us we have it when we don't. It's a necessary condition of being human, and it's big, and it's powerful, and it's absolute. It's not just a trinket or a pat on the head. It's everything. It's beautiful and terrible both, just as it is for every human being who faces a huge soaring mountain or a thunderous waterfall or a deep and dark abyss. Two more things before we wrap up. One is that there's an alternative theory that I've seen posited, which is that freedom is terrible because, well, let's back up for a moment. We mentioned some other concepts that can be both beautiful and terrible. Love, it can bring great pleasure, but also great pain. Marriage, the same thing. Truth, the same thing. But is there something, is there a concept that is only pleasure? How about beauty? Wouldn't anyone choose to be beautiful if they could get it? And the more you can get, the better? Well, perhaps. But you can say it's terrible too. It might make others afraid of you reluctant to talk to you, intimidated by your beauty, or it might make you vain or shallow. It might make it hard for others to see you for who you really are. They're dazzled by your beauty and they miss your personality. It might fade as you age. And you have adapted so much to being a beautiful person, you haven't developed your spirit your personality in other ways. If you're a Keats, seeing beauty might remind you of the fragility of life and the impermanence of life and death. So beauty, we might say, is both a negative and a positive. The positives are obvious. The negatives are that there's this edge to beauty. Can be intimidating, awful as well as awesome. So how about trying to think of others? How about happiness? That's a good thing, right? It's hard to see how that can be terrible. The more happiness, the better. Unless you think, well, happiness might remind you that there are times when you're not so happy. You think, I'm happy now, but I wasn't just a week ago, and I won't be happy next week. Maybe it's better to be even 
all those weeks instead of having ups and downs of happiness. Happiness implies there's unhappiness. Or sometimes when I'm laughing at something, especially when my kids were little and they were doing things, and I would think, oh, I wish my grandfather were here to share in this. That doesn't mean happiness is terrible. I wouldn't say that. But life is terrible sometimes, and happiness can expose that. But still, happiness is still a good thing. But here's a way it can be terrible. If you're miserable and other people are happy, then happiness is like a weapon attacking you, a weapon wielded by well-meaning but uh, oblivious people, a weapon with no enemy but yourself, and your jealousy and the sting of knowing that you don't have something that others do. They are happy. You are not. It hurts. It's terrible. Read your Dostoevsky, people. This is all. It's like him in a nutshell. And some people have said, well, there's a way for Hayden's poem to make sense. Liberty and freedom are terrible because... People who don't have them but can see that other people do will resent the freedom possessed by others. Freedom is terrible when you see that others have it and you don't. Just like my example of happiness. It's beautiful, but it's terrible. Being gaslit by the mumbo, the gaudy mumbo-jumbo of politicians is not great. It makes freedom terrible. I can see the logic in this, and I wanted to mention it for you to consider as well, but to me, doesn't fit as well with the rest of the poem quite as much. Maybe there's room for a little of that too. Why is freedom beautiful and terrible? It's terrible when it applies to some, but not all. The ones who don't have it will not find freedom very beautiful if they're on the outside looking in. Some other concepts that might fall into that category, education, perhaps. Wealth, definitely, I would say. Now, the second and last thing I wanted to raise is my question about our self-driving cars. In that example, I want freedom for myself. I don't know if I want it for other people. I think I'll make good choices with my freedom. I'm attentive and alert. But for you, for everyone else, I'd rather that they surrendered to the computer. I myself will be more free if I don't have to worry about others crashing into me because they're reading their phone when they should have their eyes on the road. There might be a touch of this in Hayden as well, a feeling of, well, it's beautiful and terrible. I know I can handle the freedom. As an individual, I can handle it. I have my religion. I have my fear of hell. I have a moral compass. I can live with defeats and setbacks or whatever people tell themselves. You can say, I understand that freedom does not mean I will always get everything that I want. But maybe some won't be as disciplined as me. Some will go off the rails. Some will stumble. Some will spin out of control with choices. And some will turn into sinners in a way that's the central dilemma of democracy. What if you're fine and you're okay, but the others around you are uninformed or too greedy or too weak or too whatever? Can you learn to live with defeat? Can you accept it when others vote in a way that you don't like? Freedom can be wonderful for me 
maybe I want to have it for myself, but maybe I'd sort of like others not to have so much of it. They might get out of control. And then I myself might fall into that habit too, get swept up with the mob, get too tempted by the way they've abused their freedom, become too licentious. It's terrible or terrifying to imagine where all this could lead, both for societies and the individuals within them. All this, I think, is kind of background for Hayden. I don't think any of this is exactly what he's thinking. And I like where he ends up. This is a beautiful poem, by the way. We haven't talked about the rest of the poem. We've been so focused on this phrase, beautiful and terrible. This poem has the idea that Douglas isn't going to be measured by statues. And what a beautiful phrase Hayden finds for that. Statues rhetoric. He won't be measured by statues rhetoric. Rhetoric. The way a statue says something about who we are and what we value. The way a statue advances an argument, conveys a point of view. It's not just an object. It's not just there for our eyes. It speaks. It has rhetoric. That's a beautiful phrase. Another one I like, well, gaudy mumbo-jumbo of politicians I've talked about already. That's wonderful. And I like the description of Douglas as superb in love and logic. And then how will he be remembered? Not by poems and statues and legends, but lives grown out of his life. What a gorgeous phrase that is. And this one too, the lives fleshing his dream. Another gorgeous phrase. And the dream is the beautiful, needful thing. Freedom. So I think we've talked enough about this now that you will hopefully see where I'm coming from when I say that freedom is slippery. It's an absolute, much to be desired, but it can be hard to pin down. We can look at the freedom of driving on the side of the road. We don't have that, do we? the freedom to drive on whatever side of the road we want, the state has come in and said, no, 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 you must drive on the right side of the road, no matter how much you might want to drive on the left, at least here in the States. That might be your sole dream in life, to drive on the left side of the road. You might say, isn't this a free country? Aren't I an American citizen, and isn't the whole point of being a citizen in America is to be free? Well, I want to drive on the left side of the road. That's my dream, my goal. (laughs) I've always wanted to do that. I don't want to be a sheep driving like everybody else. I have my own ways. I just like it over here on the left side of the road. And if you do exercise your freedom to drive on the left side of the road, the state says, okay, we'll give you a ticket. And if if you keep that up, we might arrest you. And if you continue to persist... We will lock you up. Try it. No, don't try it, please. Let's say we can imagine someone trying it. That's what will happen. You might think you live in the land of the free, but guess what? You have one side of the road to drive on, and the state has told you what that is. But look at what that means for you. 
you can drive at high speeds because of this rule. You and all your friends and loved ones get to do it. You can go out on the road and not wonder if someone will crash into you. You can ask your parents to come and visit you. They could live hundreds of miles away, and you can know that they can arrive in a few hours and not a few days. All because there's one side of the road to drive on. By surrendering this bit of freedom collectively, we are all more free. Clearly. And my self-driving car example. There are ads for this now. They don't portray self-driving cars as a form of imposed control. They don't say, hey, Jack Wilson, you get to be the free one because everyone else will be using the computer. They'll be restricted and you'll be driving in the old way free. No, no. They market the self-driving car as a form of freedom. You can relax more. Put your hands down. Sip your coffee. You're no longer tied to staring at the road with your mind fully engaged. You will be more free by giving up this freedom. And that gets us to the freedom of Robert Hayden, the one where Douglas had, in spite of being beaten to his knees and exiled, as Hayden tells us, Douglas had nevertheless visioned a world where none is lonely, none hunted, none alien. Who lost their freedom? with the Emancipation Proclamation. Slaveholders. They no longer had the right to own people. They weren't free to own people. And who was going to lose their freedom when, in Hayden's phrase, freedom would be finally ours, when it would at last belong to all, when it would be finally won? Who would lose their freedom then? Well... Racists would lose their freedom to impose their will on people they had chosen to hate. They couldn't discriminate. They couldn't dominate. They couldn't make themselves feel better by putting others in a subservient position. Is that less free? Their argument in Hayden's day was, of course it was. That's the state telling me what to do. Someone might say, well, I own this restaurant. Who are you to tell me that I can't serve black people if I don't want to? Isn't this a free country? Don't I get to pick who eats here? But here's what they would have if they could recognize and accept that freedom that impinges on the freedom of others is not as free as it might appear. Here's the freedom they might have if they could shed the prejudice. Freedom from guilt. Freedom from hate. Freedom from the constant toil of maintaining oppression. You could say freedom from being hunted. What about the freedom for not having to hunt? Freedom from shame. Freedom to live in a world where we're not pitted against each other, but we're all moving in one direction, all free to move. The congestion eased for once, finally. Maybe to someone who insists on driving on the left side of the road, seeing a world where everyone, everyone is free to drive at high speed looks like a sacrifice. Maybe it looks terrible. I don't want to drive on the right side of the road. I want to be here on the left. 
But from the side of the road where everyone has agreed to give up driving on the left side of the road, over here on the right side of the road where everyone is going 60 miles an hour instead of 6, it doesn't feel terrible. In Hayden's words, it feels beautiful. As beautiful as air. Okay, there we go. My thanks to Professor Bruce for joining me for a little about the undead. We will have a full conversation with him about dragons coming up soon. And my thanks to Robert Hayden, that gorgeous poet, for his wonderful sonnet that gave us something to ruminate on today. Something to think about. Maybe all this was obvious to you. If so, congratulations. It wasn't obvious to me why we would call freedom terrible, but thinking it through has proved illuminating. Another corner of my journey lit up. We are headed for a good new year, people. Let's hope we're turning several corners in several different ways. Here at the History of Literature, we're trying to make things better for the podcast, and it looks like we will be able to do that. Let's hope so anyway. I hope that you also have some hope in your lives, some light at the end of your tunnel. Let's try to get there together at high speeds, taking a few detours along the way because that's a good part of every journey, too, if the journey is worthwhile. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.